Chapter Thirteen of Principles of Economics, Book Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Principles of Economics, Book Four, by Alfred Marshall. Chapter Thirteen. Conclusion. Correlation of the tendencies to increasing and to diminishing return. At the beginning of this book we saw how the extra return of raw produce which nature affords to an increased application of capital and labor, other things being equal, tends in the long run to diminish. In the remainder of the book, and especially in the last four chapters, we have looked at the other side of the shield, and seen how man's power of productive work increases with the volume of the work that he does. Considering, first, the causes that govern the supply of labor, we saw how every increase in the physical, mental, and moral vigor of a people makes them more likely, other things being equal, to rear to adult age a large number of vigorous children. Turning next to the growth of wealth, we observed how every increase of wealth tends in many ways to make a greater increase more easy than before. And lastly, we saw how every increase of wealth and every increase in the numbers and intelligence of the people increased the facilities for a highly developed industrial organization, which in its turn adds much to the collective efficiency of capital and labor. Looking more closely at the economies arising from an increase in the scale of production of any kind of goods, we found that they fell into two classes those dependent on the general development of the industry, and those dependent on the resources of the individual houses of business engaged in it, and the efficiency of their management, that is, into external and internal economies. We saw how these latter economies are liable to constant fluctuations, so far as any particular house is concerned. An able man, assisted perhaps by some strokes of good fortune, gets a firm footing in the trade, he works hard and lives sparely, his own capital grows fast, and the credit that enables him to borrow more capital grows still faster. He collects around him subordinates of more than ordinary zeal and ability. As his business increases, they rise with him, they trust him, and he trusts them. Each of them devotes himself with energy to just that work for which he is specially fitted, so that no high ability is wasted on easy work and no difficult work is entrusted to unskilful hands. Corresponding to this steadily increasing economy of skill, the growth of his business brings with it similar economies of specialized machines and plant of all kinds. Every improved process is quickly adopted and made the basis of further improvements. Success brings credit, and credit brings success. Credit and success help to retain old customers and to bring new ones, the increase of his trade gives him great advantages in buying, his goods advertise one another, and thus diminish his difficulty in finding a vent for them. The increase in the scale of his business increases rapidly the advantages which he has over his competitors, and lowers the price at which he can afford to sell. This process may go on as long as his energy and enterprise, his inventive and organizing power, retain their full strength and freshness, and, so long as the risks which are inseparable from business do not cause him exceptional losses, and if it could endure for a hundred years, he and one or two others like him would divide between them the whole of that branch of industry in which he is engaged. The large scale of their production would put great economies within their reach, 
and, provided they competed to their utmost with one another, the public would derive the chief benefit of these economies, and the price of the commodity would fall very low. But here we may read a lesson from the young trees of the forest as they struggle upwards through the benumbing shade of their older rivals. Many succumb on the way, and a few only survive. These few become stronger with every year, they get a larger share of light and air with every increase of their height, and at last in their turn they tower above their neighbors, and seem as though they would grow on for ever, and for ever become stronger as they grow. But they do not. One tree will last longer in full vigor and attain a greater size than another, but sooner or later age tells on them all. Though the taller ones have a better access to light and air than their rivals, they gradually lose vitality, and one after another they give place to others, which, though of less material strength, have on their side the vigor of youth. As with the growth of trees, so was it with the growth of businesses, as a general rule, before the great recent development of vast joint stock companies, which often stagnate, but do not readily die. Now that rule is far from universal, but it still holds in many industries and trades. Nature still presses on the private businesses by limiting the life of its original founders, and by limiting even more narrowly that part of their lives in which their faculties retain full vigor. And so, after a while, the guidance of the business falls into the hands of people with less energy and less creative genius, if not with less active interest in its prosperity. If it is turned into a joint stock company, it may retain the advantages of division of labor, of specialized skill and machinery, it may even increase them by a further increase of its capital, and under favorable conditions it may secure a permanent and prominent place in the work of production. But it is likely to have lost so much of its elasticity and progressive force that the advantages are no longer exclusively on its side in its competition with younger and smaller rivals. When, therefore, we are considering the broad results which the growth of wealth and population exert on the economies of production, the general character of our conclusions is not very much affected by the facts that many of these economies depend directly on the size of the individual establishments engaged in the production, and that in almost every trade there is a constant rise and fall of large businesses, at any one moment some firms being in the ascending phase, and others in the descending. For in times of average prosperity decay in one direction is sure to be more than balanced by growth in another. Meanwhile, an increase in the aggregate scale of production, of course, increases those economies, which do not directly depend on the size of individual houses of business. The most important of these results from the growth of correlated branches of industry, which mutually assist one another, perhaps being concentrated in the same localities, but anyhow availing themselves of the modern facilities for communication offered by steam transport, by the telegraph, and by the printing press. The economies arising from such sources as this, which are accessible to any branch of production, do not depend exclusively upon its own growth, but yet they are sure to grow rapidly and steadily with that growth, and they are sure to dwindle in some, though not in all respects, if it decays. These results will be of great importance when we come to discuss the causes which govern the supply price of a commodity. We shall have to analyze carefully the normal cost of producing a commodity relatively to a given aggregate volume of production, 
and for this purpose we shall have to study the expenses of a representative producer for that aggregate volume. On the one hand, we shall not want to select some new producer just struggling into business, who works under many disadvantages, and has to be content for a time with little or no profits, but who is satisfied with the fact that he is establishing a connection, and taking the first steps towards building up a successful business, nor, on the other hand, shall we want to take a firm which by exceptionally long sustainability and good fortune has got together a vast business, and huge, well-ordered workshops that give it a superiority over almost all its rivals. But our representative firm must be one which has had a fairly long life and fair success, which is managed with normal ability, which has normal access to the economies, external and internal, which belong to that aggregate volume of production, account being taken of the class of goods produced, the conditions of marketing them, and the economic environment generally. Thus, a representative firm is, in a sense, an average firm. But there are many ways in which the term average might be interpreted in connection with a business. And a representative firm is that particular sort of average firm at which we need to look in order to see how far the economies, internal and external, of a production on a large scale have extended generally in the industry and country in question. We cannot see this by looking at one or two firms taken at random, but we can see it fairly well by selecting, after a broad survey, a firm, whether in private or joint stock management, or better still, more than one, that represents, to the best of our judgment, this particular average. The general argument of the present book shows that an increase in the aggregate volume of production of anything will generally increase the size, and therefore the internal economies possessed by such a representative firm, that it will always increase the external economies to which the firm has access, and thus will enable it to manufacture at a less proportionate cost of labor and sacrifice than before. In other words, we say broadly that while the part which nature plays in production shows a tendency to diminishing return, the part which man plays shows a tendency to increasing return. The law of increasing return may be worded thus. An increase of labor and capital leads generally to improved organization, which increases the efficiency of the work of labor and capital. Therefore, in those industries which are not engaged in raising raw, produce an increase of labor and capital generally, gives a return increased more than in proportion. And further, this improved organization tends to diminish or even override any increased resistance which nature may offer to raising increased amounts of raw produce. If the actions of the laws of increasing and diminishing return are balanced, we have the law of constant return, and an increased produce is obtained by labor and sacrifice increased just in proportion. For the two tendencies towards increasing and diminishing return press constantly against one another. In the production of wheat and wool, for instance, the latter tendency has almost exclusive sway in an old country, which cannot import freely. In turning the wheat into flour, or the wool into blankets, an increase in the aggregate volume of production brings some new economies, but not many, for the trades of grinding wheat and making blankets are already on so great a scale that any new economies that they may attain are more likely to be the result of new inventions than of improved organization. In a country, however, in which the blanket trade is but slightly developed, 
these latter may be important, and then it may happen that an increase in the aggregate production of blankets diminishes the proportionate difficulty of manufacturing by just as much as it increases that of raising the raw material. In that case the actions of the laws of diminishing and of increasing return would just neutralize one another, and blankets would conform to the law of constant return. But in most of the more delicate branches of manufacturing, where the cost of raw materials counts for little, and in most of the modern transport industries the law of increasing return acts almost unopposed. Increasing return is a relation between the quantity of effort and sacrifice on the one hand, and a quantity of produce on the other. The quantities cannot be taken out exactly, because changing methods of production call for machinery, and for unskilled and skilled labor of new kinds, and in new proportions. But, taking a broad view, we may perhaps say vaguely that the output of a certain amount of labor and capital in an industry has increased by perhaps a quarter or a third in the last twenty years. To measure outlay and output in terms of money is a tempting, but a dangerous resource for a comparison of money outlay with money returns is apt to slide into an estimate of the rate of profit on capital. We may now sum up provisionally the relations of industrial expansion to social well-being. A rapid growth of population has often been accompanied by unhealthy and enervating habits of life in overcrowded towns, and sometimes it has started badly, outrunning the material resources of the people, causing them with imperfect appliances to make excessive demands on the soil, and so to call forth the stern action of the law of diminishing return, as regards raw produce, without having the power of minimizing its effects. Having thus begun with poverty, an increase in numbers may go on to its too frequent consequence, in that weakness of character which unfits a people for developing highly organized industry. These are serious perils, but yet it remains true that the collective efficiency of a people with a given average of individual strength and energy may increase more than in proportion to their numbers. If they can for a time escape from the pressure of the law of diminishing return by importing food and other raw produce on easy terms, if their wealth is not consumed in great wars and increases at least as fast as their numbers, and if they avoid habits of life that would enfeeble them, then every increase in their numbers is likely for the time to be accompanied by more than proportionate increase in their power of obtaining material goods. For it enables them to secure the many various economies of specialized skill and specialized machinery, of localized industries and production on a large scale. It enables them to have increased facilities of communication of all kinds, while the very closeness of their neighborhood diminishes the expense of time and effort involved in every sort of traffic between them, and gives them new opportunities of getting social enjoyments and the comforts and luxuries of culture in every form. No doubt deduction must be made for the growing difficulty of finding solitude and quiet and even fresh air, but there is in most cases some balance of good. Taking account of the fact that an increasing density of population generally brings with it access to new social enjoyments, we may give a rather broader scope to this statement and say, an increase of population accompanied by an equal increase in the material sources of enjoyment and aids to production is likely to lead to a more than proportionate increase in the aggregate income of enjoyment of all kinds, 
provided firstly an adequate supply of raw produce can be obtained without great difficulty, and secondly there is no such overcrowding as causes physical and moral vigor to be impaired by the want of fresh air and light and of healthy and joyous recreation for the young. The accumulation of wealth of civilized countries is at present growing faster than the population, and, though it may be true that the wealth per head would increase somewhat faster if the population did not increase quite so fast, yet, as a matter of fact, an increase of population is likely to continue to be accompanied by a more than proportionate increase of the material aids to production, and in England, at the present time, with easy access to abundant foreign supplies of raw material, an increase of population is accompanied by a more than proportionate increase of the means of satisfying human wants, other than the need for light, fresh air, etc. Much of this increase is, however, attributable not to the increase of industrial efficiency, but to the increase of wealth by which it is accompanied, and therefore it does not necessarily benefit those who have no share in that wealth. And further, England's foreign supplies of raw produce may at any time be checked by changes in the trade regulations of other countries, and may be almost cut off by a great war, while the naval and military expenditure which would be necessary to make the country fairly secure against this last risk would appreciably diminish the benefits that she derives from the action of the law of increasing return. End of chapter 13 End of Principles of Economics, Book 4, by Alfred Marshall